English sailor and slave trader John Newton had just been rescued by another English vessel. He had been abandoned on the coast of Africa and on their way back to England, the ship encountered a vicious storm off the coast of Ireland. It appeared that the boat would sink. It was taking on water. And maybe for the first time in his life, John Newton cried out to God. And interestingly enough, the cargo shifted, blocked the hole. The ship stopped taking on water and made it back to shore. John Newton celebrated that date for the rest of his life as the beginning of his journey with God and grace. It was March the 10th, 1748. Now at that point, he didn't quite give up the slave trade, but it was soon thereafter. And then shortly after that, uh, as, as the years rolled by, he decided to go into ministry and then became a compatriot with William Wilberforce in the opposition of slavery in England. It was during those years of his ministry, reflecting on what had happened earlier in his life, that he wrote a hymn that has become world famous. Faith's Review and Expectation was the name he called it. We don't know it by that name today. We know it by the first two words of the song. Amazing grace. John Newton penned the words to a hymn about God's amazing grace. But many years before that, the apostle Paul had written a letter to the church at Ephesus about the amazing grace of God. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, this is what we read. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So the question inevitably comes up, what is it that makes God's grace so amazing? Well, let's take just a moment or two here this morning, first of all, and, and take a look at grace defined, all right? The word grace in our English language is used in a variety of ways. For instance, she moved with grace across the floor, refinement and elegance. Would you please say grace before we eat? It's a mealtime prayer. He was given a grace period to pay his bill. Grace can also be used as a verb. She graced us with her presence at the table. Now, all those are good uses of the term, but none of those are a biblical use. Never does the Bible use the word in that context. The Greek word, charis, from which we get our English word charisma, is the word that is translated grace. Now, some think that grace is a synonym with mercy or forgiveness. They're related, to be sure, but they're not the same. Let me explain it this way. Let me, let me see if I can distinguish the difference. You're stopped for speeding, and the officer gives you a ticket. That's justice. You got what you deserved. You mutter a thank you, and you drive off. That frequently happens. You're stopped for speeding, and the officer gives you a warning. That's mercy. You didn't get what you deserved. You offer a grateful thank you, and you drive off. That happens occasionally. 
You are stopped for speeding and the officer gives you a ticket. But then he reaches into his wallet and gives you the money to pay the fine. That's grace. You got something that you didn't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. You offer a shocked and an exuberant thank you and you drive off and that never happens. Now, there are several descriptions or definitions of grace, the free and unmerited favor of God. This beautiful acrostic, I think Billy Graham was the first to use this, God's riches at Christ's expense. Someone else put it this way, we get all the blessings, he paid all the bills. A technical definition, grace is the gift that makes one Glad Again, that idea of charisma, this gift, this marvelous, joyful expression. The most difficult for me, and yet the most powerful concept about grace is the fact that it is the opposite of justice. Justice says, break the law, you suffer the penalty. But grace is the opposite. Under grace, you break the law, you escape the penalty. And you think, okay, but what, what if, what if you could theoretically keep the law perfectly? If grace is the opposite of justice and if you break the law, you escape the penalty, then that means if you could live it perfectly, then you would somehow suffer the penalty? Yeah, that's the way grace works. And there was one who kept the law perfectly. And that's exactly what happened to him. He suffered the penalty so that those of us who have broken the law would escape the penalty. That's what grace is. Let me ask you, do you want God to deal with you justly or by grace? I choose grace, and I hope you do as well. Even our definitions tend to diminish its value. Someone put it like this. Grace can be dissected like a frog, but it dies in the process. It's true. You, you can carve up grace in all different ways to try to understand it, but, but by the time you get to the end of it, it it's so diluted. It, it's sort of like describing Victor Hugo's Les Miserables as a novel or a Broadway musical. Now, both of those statements are true. It is a novel and it is a Broadway musical, but to just simply relegate it to that diminishes the power of this grand story of grace. It is so much more than just a novel. It is so much more than just a Broadway musical. Kyle Eidelman made this observation. Grace can really only be known when it collides with your life. It's sort of like trying to tell an unmarried person what it's like to be married or trying to tell somebody who has now become a parent what it's like to be a parent. You, you just have to experience it to understand its depth. And in our sinful state, when we collide with the grace of God, it is something awesome to be experienced. And it's really hard to describe to somebody who hasn't found it yet. Then the question comes up, well, what, why does grace matter so much? What's the big deal about grace? Let me see if I can answer that question with a few of these, what I think are very biblical answers. First of all, the grace of God saves us from our sins. If that was it, that would be enough. That's not the only thing, but that's the big one. Look at Ephesians 2. Again, we start in verse 4. If you go back up to the beginning of the chapter, you see the contrast between the two, all right? 
in, in verse 1 it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul's talking about Satan. And you don't have to pick up the newspaper uh, or, or turn on the news or, or check online and get on the internet to find, I mean, very often to find all these horrible stories. This morning, this morning the news was that 20 in Orlando were murdered. Another 40 some odd were injured. Those statistics may have changed by this point in time. Just this past week, a young lady who had appeared on The Voice was shot by some creep for whatever reason. She died from those wounds. You, every day, something is going on in this world that reminds us that evil is at work and that the power of Satan is still captivating in this world. And Paul writes to the fact that that's what we used to be. But because of the grace of God, we have been saved. Really, Ephesians chapter 2 is about a choice. It's our choice. It's not God's. He issues an invitation of grace. Only we can RSVP. There's a lot at stake. By the same power that God raised Jesus from the physical dead, he can raise us from the spiritual dead condition of our lives. But first, we have to recognize that we're dead and we need a resurrection. Have you ever heard a doctor or a surgeon say it's not curable, but it's treatable? That sin is like that in this world. It's not curable in this world, but it is treatable. We need to go back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God said, if you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. They ate of the tree, they died, and we've still been dying ever since. And you and I are going to die. Even though we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we still are going to suffer death in this world. Sin in this world is not curable, it's treatable. What has changed our lives forever is that we have been raised spiritually. That's the one that matters. We are no longer separated from God. We are going to be with him. And that's what makes all the difference. Now, honestly, folks, I don't like to talk about sin. It's uh, way too close to home. A colleague uh, of mine in ministry said he has an elder that says, don't ever preach on sin, just preach on grace and people will draw the conclusion. They'll understand sin if you preach on grace. I don't think that's true. I, I don't, I, we're too good at rationalizing. If all we do is talk about grace and we don't talk about sin, people aren't going to get the picture. Uh, the, 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 the fact is, you have to understand the fact that you're a sinner before you know that you even need God's grace. To appreciate the power of grace must one understand the devastation of sin. How are you going to make it up to God? You know, the, the bottom line is this. If, if we owe God a life, it should be a perfect life. I mean, he is the creator. He's the standard. He's given us the law. We owe him a perfect life. There are no perfect lives among us here today. So how are we going to make it up to God what we have done? Well, I, I like what author and minister Tim Keller wrote. He said... He, Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. People say, well, I don't like to talk about sin because it makes me feel guilty. Well, I don't like to talk about guilt either. It's, it's not an enjoyable feeling, but just because it feels bad doesn't mean it is bad. I don't like pain either, but pain is an essential protector. Pain indicates that something is wrong, that we have a disease, that something is broken, that something needs to be fixed. What pain is to the body, 
Guilt is to the soul. It's a warning that something's going on in our life. It's a warning that may save us spiritually. Feeling guilty may just keep you from rebelling against God, which is what sin really is. And you say, well, I think I'll just count on my goodness. You know, I'll get to heaven because I'm more good than I am bad, and that ought to count for something. No, it doesn't count for anything. To be honest with you, you know, nobody is good enough. That's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to ignore this pain in my side because the rest of my body feels really good. No, you don't ignore the pain in your side because that means something drastic is going on inside. Even though you may feel better in the majority of the places, you still got to deal with the pain. Do we really believe our goodness is, is sufficient to satisfy God? You, you really want to stake your eternal life on the good things you've done as opposed to the bad things you've done? I don't. I know I'm not good enough. I suspect you aren't good enough either. As a matter of fact, I know you aren't good enough either because that's what the Bible says. I, I, I don't want to risk such an eternity on mine because I have nothing. I have nothing with which to come back and square myself with God. Uh, let me see if I can describe it this way. Let's suppose Tim Thompson eventually uh, finds a young woman, falls in love, and, and gets married. It could happen. Okay? And Tim is so in love that uh, he, this young lady, in her wisdom, hands him a contract and asks him to sign it. And on the contract, it says, I, Tim Thompson, will give you every penny I ever earn. And Tim is so in love that he signs the contract, you know, and, and they get married. And about two years into the marriage, Tim decides, you know, it really would be nice if I could just have an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola. And um, so he devises a plan that every paycheck he gets is going to keep back a nickel. And so several weeks go by. He keeps back a nickel until he's got 75 cents and he plunks it into the Coke machine, hits the button, it rattles down to the bottom. Just as he pulls the can out, pops the top, he takes a big old drink. She comes around the corner and she says, Tim Thompson, where did you get that can of Coke? And he hangs his head and he says, I'm sorry. He said, I kept a nickel out of my paycheck. I was just so thirsty for a Coke. He says, I'll never do it again. I'll make it up to you. And she says, with what? And she'd be right. He signed a contract that every penny he ever makes belongs to her. So how's he going to make anything to make it up to her? He can't. He's already indebted to her. And he has nothing left to make it up with. He needs somebody to pay his debt. Now, here's a footnote. I've told this story the last two services. People have been coming up and giving Tim 75 cents all morning long <laughs> after the service. I'm tired of it, all right? I'm the one telling the story, not him. He's just the illustration in the story. So, all right, he, he's got enough cans of Coke to last him for a while. Do, do you get the point? Do you, you know, you're, you're living your life, you're sinning, you think, oh God, I'll make this up to you. With what? We have nothing left to give back to God. We need someone to pay our debt. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Man-made world religions have us trying to satisfy angry gods. But this text in Ephesians tells us, that God is eager to extend his loving kindness. In false religions, humanity takes the lead. In Christianity, God takes the lead. The word saved in this passage that occurs twice is in the perfect tense, which indicates that our present state is the result of a past action. Our present salvation 
was purchased in the past through Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad we're saved by grace? Now, grace does much more. As a matter of fact, the grace of God transforms our behavior. It doesn't just save us, but works on us daily to change who we are so that outwardly our deeds and our behavior reflect what has happened inwardly through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to his young minister friend Titus in, in chapter 2 of Titus. And it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace is what keeps us going. Salvation happens immediately. Transformation takes a lifetime. But grace is at the heart of both. And the grace of God sustains us in our trials. Everybody goes through tough times. That's a part of living in a broken world. Even the apostle Paul had some kind of a physical malady. He called it his thorn in the flesh. And three times he prayed that God would remove that physical malady from him. And God's response, as Paul records it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, is this. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to write, he says, then, then he'll boast in his weakness because it will make God's greatness and grace look good. Suffering's a part of life. Recognizing that is important. But here's the deal. You don't need to let suffering get the best of you. God's grace is sufficient. Thomas Halker in 1555 England, he was a Protestant, which went against the grain, was not well accepted, and he was arrested because of his Protestant beliefs and asked to recant by the Bishop of London. When he was asked to recant, Thomas said this, No, I will not, for if I had a hundred bodies, I would suffer them all to be torn into pieces rather than I will recant. He was then burned at the stake. On the night before he was to be executed, Family and friends were allowed to visit with him. One friend slipped up to the bars of his prison cell and said, Thomas, I need to know if what others say about God's grace is true. Tomorrow, if the pain is tolerable, if your mind is still at peace in him, lift your hands above your head. Thomas, I have to know. Halker whispered through the bars, I will. The next morning as they lit the flames and as the flames engulfed not only the wood but the body of Thomas Halker, those standing to watch feared that he had died quickly. And then suddenly, almost miraculously, Thomas Halker lifted his hands above his head and clapped them three times. There was a cheer that went up from the Christians standing around the fire. They knew that the grace of God was sufficient. I don't care what you're going through. It may be hard. It may be painful. It may be life-threatening. But God's grace is sufficient to get you through because you know what's on the other side is better than anything here. Ravi Zacharias said, Faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Lastly, the grace of God matters when life ends. On, Mar on May 13th of this year, 
Emma Morano was declared the oldest person living on the face of the earth. She's 116 years old. She lives in Italy. She was born November the 29th, 1899. She is the last person alive on this globe from the 1800s. When Emma dies, there will be nobody else left on this planet who was born in the 1800s. That doesn't sound like 1899, doesn't sound like it's been that terribly long ago, and yet no one, no one from that century will be on this globe after she's gone. It's a stark reminder how quick life passes before our very eyes. Time is short. The grace of God is the only thing that matters. Now, to such a generous God, how do we communicate this grace to other people? I think the best way to communicate God's grace is by being gracious to other people, by treating them the way that God has treated us, to give them something that they don't deserve because that opens the door for them to say, why would you do this? And you can say, because God did this for me, I want to do this for you so that you might see his grace at work in this world. I've read about this. I've also seen a video of this. I wish we could show you the video this morning, but it is copyrighted, so we cannot go onto YouTube. You can type in the Gainesville Tornadoes or, uh, or the Vanguard, Vanguard Prep School, and you'll probably find this particular uh, video. But it, it is a great story. Now, the, the Gainesville Tornadoes in Gainesville, Texas, it is a juvenile correction facility for felony offenders and these young men just a handful of them who are on their best behavior are allowed to go play a few basketball games against schools private schools not public schools and so they get a chance every once in a while get they have no fans nobody ever shows up to watch them play for their team so when they got ready to play against school uh vanguard uh, college prep school in waco texas one a couple of the guys who were on the, the uh, team there at Vanguard decided that they would do something different. Uh, Hudson Bradley and Ben Martinson announced that they didn't want to play against a team that didn't have any fans on their side. So they asked half of the fans for Vanguard to sit on the opposite side. They divided the cheerleaders. They had t-shirts printed up with the Tornadoes logo on it and all this kind of stuff. They had a whole lineup that when the guys from from Gainesville came out. They had high fives from people. They were just stunned. They didn't know what was going on. They'd never seen anything quite like this happen. The game went on, and before the game was over, every time the tornadoes would score, the whole gymnasium was cheering for them. Nobody was cheering for the home team of Vanguard. <laughs> the spirit of grace had just kind of caught up with the whole crowd. And, and, and when the guys from the Juvenile Correctional Center were interviewed afterwards. All of them were just in a state of stunned disbelief. They said, I'll never forget this. This is the most important night of my life. One said, when I become an old man, I'll still be thinking of this night. And then Hudson Bradley summarized the story like this. He said, we all need someone to believe in us. We all need someone who knows our mistakes and loves us Anyway, don't you love that? Maybe, maybe that's the best definition of grace ever. He knew my mistakes. He loved me anyway and sent his son to pay what I could not pay. Are you still in bondage to sin or have your chains been freed?